I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. We're talking to leading figures about how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. We've been interviewing people together for newspapers for more than 20 years. What struck us over and over again is how many of them have dealt with trauma or tragedy as children. Some have lost a parent or seen those around them struggle with serious illness, poverty, addiction or mental health problems. It could have destroyed them, but for some reason the adversity seems to drive them on. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson, and our guest today is a Nobel Prize winning scientist and geneticist who was knighted for his service to the study of cancer. He's the head of the Francis Crick Institute, the largest single biomedical research laboratory in Europe, which has been on the front line of testing for the coronavirus during the pandemic. As a research scientist, he was mocked by his colleagues when he decided to make his specialism in the study of yeast, the subject that helped him to understand how human cells multiply and won him his Nobel Prize. Then he found out that his childhood had been based on secrets and lies. He is Sir Paul Nurse, and we went to see him at the Crick Institute, where we can actually see the testing centre for the virus outside. So how many tests did you say you're doing a day now? We can do 2,000 a day, but we could do up to 5,000. Right. And we have less than between 12-hour, 24-hour turnaround, which I don't know if you pick up. That's very the good. Big, the, mm. the government ones are often five days, which are next to useless, really. Crazy, yeah. But anyway. This building's extraordinary, though, isn't it? I've never been in it before. Here? This yeah. is it your first? It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, first time, yes. We've only ever seen you, really, on Zoom calls. So. On Zoom calls, yeah. I <laughs> um, hate Zoom. I don't know about you, but I hate Zoom calls. <laughs> but there's but an incredible double helix at the entrance hall, isn't there? Now, it's not a double helix. I said the last thing I wanted in this place was a double helix, because I'm sick of them. You Why? Know? All these public art stuff is double down helix. So what so is it? What it is, is it's um, Conrad Shawcross, um, and it's, um, it's conceptual. So it's, it's called Paradigm. And the notion was, you see, you saw what it, it did mm. this. And the notion was that as an idea, in our case, scientific one, it starts small and grows. Okay. You, it gets stronger as you put more facts and arguments on place. But it's always unstable. So that if you put something more on top, the whole thing uh-huh. could collapse. So you, you have to constantly thing. adjust. You, well, you see, it's what we do yourself. here. You have a hypothesis, you build it, you come to your favourite thing. And then it... Oh, that's fascinating. Just this <laughs> Yeah. So, Sir Paul, the last time we met you was on Zoom. Um, we've never actually met you in the flesh, have we? And that's because you are the expert, really, on coronavirus testing. Well, it's a pleasure to see you in the flesh. Um, But I'm not really an expert on coronavirus, so I have to correct that. 
Um, what I've learnt about viruses have all been learnt in about the last three months. <laughs> but we so can see the testing centre outside in the car park. It's just out there, out of the window, and what the Crick Institute has done, because it is a research institute, we normally don't do routine testing, um, but when we um, uh, learnt about the virus and learnt what it could do and the dangers it might um, bring about, we decided that we would try and well, help the UK endeavour by supporting um, the local hospitals and local care homes with a very rapid turnaround testing of whether their um, patients, but also particularly healthcare workers, um, were infected. Because uh, what you have in a hospital is very um, vulnerable people, and if their healthcare workers are... um, infect, in infecting them, I mean, that makes it even mm. worse. So the objective was to try and keep it as a safe environment. And you talked about summoning the sort of Dunkirk spirit, didn't you, with small laboratories joining the fight? Well, the Dunkirk spirit <laughs> metaphor was because um, the, the, the government or their advisers, and I truthfully don't know where it came from, um, decided when um, the um, pandemic started that they would look um, into producing very large laboratories that, that did mass testing. Now, that wasn't such a daft idea, but it wasn't so sensible given that they hadn't prepared for it. So suddenly to establish big laboratories, there's one at Milton Keynes, one in Glasgow and elsewhere, and expecting all the workflow to work efficiently was frankly just totally naive because it's complicated getting these samples, getting the stuff in there, getting all the IT to work, getting the information back again. And what we reasoned was that um, here we're local, we're next to the hospital, next to the care homes, next to the ambulance workers. When something goes wrong, we pick up a telephone, we know who's there. When the IT doesn't work, which it often doesn't, we sort that out. We can get a turnaround in 24 hours, 12 hours sometimes, if somebody's uh, out for an operation. And you just using sticking class to get the whole thing working. You also have some of the best scientists in the world here, though, don't you? We do. So we have excellent scientists who could put something together very quickly. As a scientist, do you have a sense of excitement about battling the virus, or does it fill you with dread and fear that... Well, you know, I'm over 70, so I have a bit of dread. I've <laughs> reached, reached my three score years and ten, but I know I'm vulnerable. But there was something exciting about seeing my colleagues getting together with doctors in the hospital, front line, and we, I have excellent colleagues, and they were trying to solve problems, working together. Our chief operating officer here used to run a hospital, so we had everything. We had somebody who knew how hospitals work. We had great scientists, and we had people battling on the front, all mixed together, all bringing something different to that. And it was exciting, because within weeks they were doing stuff. And, I, I, I mean, it, it, I haven't quite seen it like that before. And somehow all the sort of leadership disappeared. You know, we weren't having to talk... You know, it didn't talk much to me. I gave them cover. They got on with it. I lent them all my graduate students so that they could do COVID work, so they stopped their PhD project. But we weren't talking to deans and vice chancellors <laughs> or even leaders of the hospital. It was just those at the coal face getting together and solving the problems. Can 
go back to your childhood and, and really your formative experiences and how you became a scientist. And just starting off, you grew up in northwest London mm-hmm. and you um, went to state schools and you yes, I, had I, quite a difficult educational background, didn't you? It wasn't always going to be that you were going to get a Nobel Prize. No, no, that wasn't obvious, I have to say. Um, <laughs> the, um, Do you, your teachers would be astonished. <laughs> Well, yes, I, I have kept contacting one or two of my teachers, and I mean, I, they are pleased about it, <laughs> um, I must admit. I came um, from a working-class background, a blue-collar background. My, um, my dad was, worked in H.A. Hines on the um, baked bean line, um, keeping the machines going, and my mum was a cleaner, actually. And uh, we lived in Needston, not the most exciting place in the world, Alberton, Wembley. And um, so I just went to a local state school. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes I did well at school, sometimes I didn't. I was highly erratic. I was younger than my um, uh, siblings. Um, I had a sister and two brothers. So I spent quite a lot of time alone, actually. And my parents were a bit elderly. And um, so I was sort of playing a lot with my, uh, kept, you know, kept myself to myself, really, even though I'm quite social. And I got really interested in natural history and the world around me, astronomy, from eight, nine, ten years of age. How did you get interested? Um, I got interested partly in, because I used to walk quite a long way to school, and uh, I just looked at the seasons changing in the local parks and, the, and so on. So I worked through, I just fascinated by the fact that insects came up sometime and then weren't seen at another time and sometimes the leaves of plants were bigger when they were growing in the shade all this sort of thing that you just notice when you're alone and walking and as and you just started wondering why and just wondered why i was more or less an only child because my uh, brothers and sisters were seven eight years older you know i saw i was by myself quite a lot I, i talked a lot to myself so i think people thought i was a bit odd and I probably am a bit odd, actually. But, uh, but uh, it, it was, I wasn't actually ever lonely. And my, my background, though not academic, was not difficult. It just, we didn't have any books. No, I think Biggles. I think remember a couple of Biggles <laughs> books. We had the Bible, of course, because my, um, my mother was um, Baptist. And um, I went to the Baptist church. And, uh, but I did get really fascinated in the natural world. Mm. I remember seeing Sputnik 2, and that was, uh, I mean, my family did think I was a bit strange, because I managed to read in the newspaper that Sputnik 2, it's the one with that dog in it, like, was going to pass over London. How old were you? How old? I was eight or nine, I think. It was 1958, if I remember Mm. right. It's only the second satellite. And I went out in my pyjamas into the front garden we had quite a busy road and I told my parents that you know at 823 or something this star would be seen and so they came to the front door and there it was it was just going across the sky amazing and I do remember trying to chase it down the road running after it you know of course I'm, I'm <laughs> so I told my children this story a few weeks ago when the, we had the new space shuttle that went over just under the moon ah yes yeah um, and I, I remembered you having told us that in the interview and I said god it's extraordinary you must come watch this and actually they were incredibly excited because you can really see them can't you you really can see them they're bright they're mag- and and human beings put it up there mm. 
human beings were up there. And, of course, a little later it was Yuri Gagarin was up there. I didn't see that one. Um, I did feel sorry for the dog, by the way. By the way, the dog did die. Well, they never got it back. Did you it, want to be an astronaut or did you not want to once the dog died? I'm a, um, I'm a pilot, actually, so I do fly so you could have been. Um, planes and gliders, but um, I never wanted to be an astronaut. Was that to do with reaching for the stars? Um, was it reaching for the stars? Do you know, I like to escape the ground. I, it, so it wasn't reaching for the stars, it was more to get to somewhere where you could look down on the world. So more about discovery? Yeah, well, just seeing how everything connected together. I'd had that experience before because I was brought up northwest London and you'd get the underground. I'd get on Alperton and then the, it would go underground and then you'd go through all these different um, stations, okay? And then later I, I started to walk between the stations above ground and I realised they all connected. <laughs> but they were connected by something you could see whereas... When you're in the tunnel, it was... And that was a revelation for me when I was seven or eight, when I worked from one station to another and realised there was something all up there. It must sound strange, but, I mean, it was... So is it that really what science is for you? It's about exploring the unknown and finding things I've happen. always been immensely curious. I, mm. I remember my dad saying, when I kept asking questions on the top of the bus, just stop it, just stop <laughs> asking questions. And, no, I've always been very curious, very, very curious. And you didn't really like exams, did you? I was pretty hopeless at exams. My parents um, came from Norfolk, and I was in a London school, and my mum and dad used to talk like this, you see. One day I want to give a lecture like this and see if people think I'm an intellectual. Because, <laughs> you know, regional accents of that sort don't sort of count. And, of course, this <laughs> got mocked in school, naturally, mm -hmm. talking like this. But it meant I've always had a problem, not a dyslexic problem, but a problem reproducing sounds, words that other people have said. So I've always been hopeless at languages. And you may or may not know that I managed to fail French O-level, which was the GCSE of the time, six times. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but that made it record. hard to get to university, didn't it? I couldn't get into university, so, in fact. Which is crazy. Well, I, I mean, it's how it was, but, and most people can pass it, but I, I didn't. I mm. mean, Did you struggle for sort of hours and hours? With I did. Time? I struggled and struggled. It wasn't that I... Um, was, was lazy or anything, I just couldn't do it. Mm. Like, some people can't do maths. I couldn't do foreign language. So I couldn't get into university, and I worked as a technician for a year in Guinness, the brewery. And, you know, I'd love to have a foreign language. I'd love to. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I just can't do it. I, I mean, I've, uh, I've worked in foreign countries, and I have a Légion d'honneur from France. <laughs> had to give a speech in French. I mean... Pretty hopeless speech, but I had to do it. <laughs> My school wanted me to stay on another year and to do everything again, but the only thing I was lacking was O-level French. And I <laughs> Which might not have changed if you tried this, it a seventh time. I mean, this was just ridiculous. My headmaster, um, who was a lovely man, actually, um, and who is still alive, he's in his 90s, we actually correspond. Um, and he, um, he got my parents in, my poor parents, because he thought maybe they were trying to get me to go to work, you know, because we weren't well off. They weren't. They were doing everything they could to support me, and they, but they were terrified to be brought into the headmaster's study. But I said, it's me, I think I should leave and go and work as 
And was that, in retrospect, actually a good idea? Because you saw what work was like and you could... It was a brilliant idea. I mean, not because I thought it was brilliant, but for several reasons. I was only 17 when I left school. And um, suddenly I was in the real world. Um, I worked as a technician in a laboratory. My job was to make up um, the, the solutions people needed and then give them to the real scientists. And I realised they asked me every day for the same solution. So I just made it all up on one day and then gave it to them every other day. And I went to my boss and said, I can do this job in one day. What do you want me to do? Okay. <laughs> and he gave me, um, he said, well, you better do a research project. And so I just played around in the lab for the whole year till I was 18. And then I got let into Birmingham University, which is where I, I went. And what was so good about it was that most people went then, because there was no gap years then, they went from school and then straight into university. So university was like an extension of school, whereas for me it was not. And I was thirsty for education, really thirsty. And having that break, which is why it was so brilliant for me, just really enhanced my interest in what was happening. And my um, lectures and so on, were, it was just so exciting. And why did you get interested in yeast, which some of your colleagues thought was not going to be very promising? I got interested in yeast. I, I did botany as my first degree. I was interested in fundamental biological processes. And we're all made of cells. And cells grow and divide into two. And that's the basis of all reproduction. And that division is the sort of basis of all growth, development and reproduction. It's really critical. And... I thought, well, I should, if I'm going to try and understand it, I should try and use a really simple system. Because all our cells do that, but they also do things like make arms and noses and eyes and mm. do all sorts of other complicated things. Whereas a yeast is a stripped-down version of that. It has to do the same thing, um, but it doesn't have to do all these other things. And what that meant was that I could... Uh, I felt that we were much more likely to understand it because of the simpler system. And that did turn out to be true, spectacularly true, actually. Mm. And uh, actually led to developments on cancer and all kinds of incredibly important things. It really did. I mean, mm. it led to the Nobel Prize because mm. we worked out in my lab how that control process um, worked, um, together with colleagues in other labs, of course, because I shared it with the Nobel Prize with Lee Hartwell and Tim Hunt. And... Uh, but it turned out to be exactly the same, and my lab showed it in humans as in mm -hmm. yeast. And the fact that that was the same was extraordinary because it, it tells you that this basic control, controlling division of one cell to two, is the same in every living thing that you can see. You know, it's every animal, exciting. plant, and fun. It was amazingly exciting mm -hmm. when, when uh, probably the most exciting single experiment that was done in my lab. But what it meant was that since we were, um, have all evolved from um, a, a simple um, organism, yeast and humans were once an organism 1,500 million years ago, that once this control had been invented, it, was, it remained the same. For 1,500 million years. So, so was it like a eureka it? moment that you suddenly thought? Oh, it's a eureka moment, hmm. for sure. I had a couple. That, that, was, um, that was probably the most spectacular. And what was it like when you won the Nobel Prize? Did you, can you remember the day that you were told? It was a strange day because I, they, you know, everybody only knows the Nobel Prize, but there are precursor prizes, ones that you get which um, mean 
that you are likely to be considered. And I'd won a number of those. So I knew that I was likely to be on a list. Okay. Um, it became irritating because journalists would phone me up the day before and say, do you think you'll win the Nobel <laughs> Prize this year? And I'd forget about it, and, that, and then it would all remind me. Well, the day I did win it, which was 2001, so it's nearly 20 years ago now, uh, the day I did win it, I thought I hadn't, because nobody had phoned me. So I went to a meeting, and that was a, a, a complete coincidence, with um, Jim Watson. Now, Watson of Watson yes. and Crick. And uh, he was in London, and uh, we met in a, a, um, an architect's office because we were trying to see how we could um, get a museum in Bruno in Czechoslovakia, as it was then, to celebrate Mendel. Grigor Mendel was the uh, architect of genetics, published his famous paper on peas in 1865. And the idea was, could we make a museum or help make a, a, a museum? Anyway, we were sitting there talking with the, the architects and so on there, and in came somebody from the office to say, um, it's Paul Nurse here. And I said, yes, that's me. And he said, your officer's phone, could you turn on your mobile phone? <laughs> because I, you, you know, I always keep it off and um, still do. And um, the, I switched it on. And there was a recorded message, and it was very heavy accent. It was Swedish. <laughs> and which you're not good at. <laughs> which I'm not good at. And when I listened to it, I thought, um, that, I think they're asking me to comment on who's won the Nobel Prize. I didn't twig. It was for me. Okay. <laughs> and so then I did it again, and I thought, I think they're telling me I've won it. <laughs> then I did it a third time. And I came to that conclusion. And I went back into the room where Watson was, and I said, um, excuse me, I think I've got to go back to my lab because I think I may have won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I did. Fantastic. Yeah. And my friend, Tim Hunt, who, um, he phoned me up, uh, who won it at the same time, and he said, I've had this message saying you've won it. I think it's a, it's a con. It can't be true. <laughs> Have you, no. uh, has anybody contacted you? And I said, uh, well, yes, but I've only got a recorded message. And he said, I don't believe you, I don't believe it. And, and he said, I They thought it was a prank or something. Well, you know, people do do yeah. silly things. And, uh, and then we were both watching the computer screen on the website and up it came. So oh. then and where do you keep it. your Nobel Prize now? I've got it in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> I've got it in a drawer. Yeah. Is it very heavy? Um... Actually, I've got a facsimile in the real one, and I no longer know which is the real one. Because <laughs> sometimes I lend the facsimile, but I've got confused. <laughs> What's so fascinating, though, is you are a Nobel Prize-winning geneticist, but then your own DNA, you then had an extraordinary discovery. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, I can, because um, the, uh, um, it was a surprise, because, as you rightly say, I'm a geneticist. And I was working in the um, United States. I was president of a research university, a very famous one, Rockefeller University. Only has 100 faculty. It had eight Nobel laureates there when I was wow. president. Eight. Quite remarkable. It's dropped now. It's the same as here. Four. We have four in the <laughs> Crick Institute here. But the, um, the, uh, uh, I was there, and I wanted to get a green card. 
And this meant, you know, America's very bureaucratic. Nobody realizes that who just stays in the UK, immensely bureaucratic. And so I had to get lots of bits of paper together and put it all, all together, sent it off, and um, I was rejected for a green card. Now, at the time, I had a Nobel Prize. I was knighted, and I was president of one of the most famous universities in the country, okay? So and they rejected odd, me. Yeah. And I thought, you know, what's going on here? And they said they didn't like my birth certificate. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. They said they didn't like my birth certificate. My birth certificate was what's the so-called short birth certificate. It's a certificate which named you as a citizen where you were born and so on, but it doesn't name your parents. And you'd never noticed that? No, I had noticed it, um, and I discussed it with my mum and dad, and I said, why have I got a short one? And they said, well, because it was cheaper than the long one. Uh, how did you I, get a passport, though, originally? Did you not have to say who your parents were? Yes. So course. you just lied without realising Well, I didn't lie. I <laughs> thought I knew who my parents were. But what happened was I wrote away to get my long birth certificate, and when I opened it, it was one of these sort of strange moments, really. I, I'd just been on holiday, come back from Australia, actually, and we, um, I was there with my wife, Anne, and we had um, my PA and her assistant there, my lab manager, had four women in the room, and my um, secretary, PA, had asked um, Anne, and I sort of half heard it, um, his birth certificate from Paul, but I think he got the name of his mother wrong. Right. And I sort of, you know, added up what's going on here. And so um, Anne looked at it and then looked at me and then gave it to me. And I looked at it and there was the name of my sister. Oh, my goodness. Not my mother, my sister. And how much older was she than you? She was um, 17 years older than me. Okay. And um, maybe just 18. And I thought, this is a mistake, you know. I mean, what's... Uh, you know, uh, what, what's happening? Then I looked for my father, and where it was father was just a line. There was no father, okay? Or it was just a dash. Yeah. So I, I thought there was a mistake. Yeah. And so I phoned up the registry office and said, this has happened to me. How often do you make a mistake? And, and the, the, it was funny. Oh. The person I was talking to was obviously bored, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, I, I, and, she, and she said, well, why do you want to know? And I explained. And she said, 
are you alone? She said. I think she'd obviously had a little manual that when you get a question <laughs> like this, you should, yes. are you alone? I think you should sit down. And, um, and so she explained they don't make a mistake and it, 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 it means what it says. And how did you feel about it? Well, I felt a bit confused. Did you like your sister? I, my sister got married when I was two and a half. What happened was um, she got pregnant at 17. She was sent away like a Victorian novel, really. She was sent to her um, aunt, who lived in Norwich. We lived in London, and gave birth to me. My grandmother um, worried about the reputation of and her very daughter. Religious. Also religious, yeah. Baptist. Came up and pretended she was the mother. Right. Never adopted me. Never adopted me. And came back with me and pretended to be... Um, um, my mum. And to your siblings, she pretended. And she never told my brothers. Obviously, my sister knew. And she lived um, with us all. We were in a tiny flat, just a two-bedroom flat. There were lots of us. I also had a grandmother, who was, of course, my great-grandmother. I mean, right. but that's a, I mean, it gets all very calm. Everybody in my family's changed yes. what they are. And we... Um, so it was a tiny two-bedroom flat. And she got married when I was two and a half. And that's a really poignant... Um, photograph because I, I never discussed it because I only found this out after she'd died and there's a photograph of her getting married to her husband holding her husband's hand in one hand and my hand in the other because oh she was leaving goodness. me with um, my grandmother So do you think she regretted it? She used to keep a... I learnt all this later. She had three children, legitimate children and who are now my half-siblings but were my nephew and nieces um, and she used to keep four pictures of babies beside her bed and one was of me and, and they, they never thought about they, it they never told me this till afterwards oh my goodness. and um, she was asked why and she said well he, he, you know, he was my ba little baby brother right so amazing, she must have felt of you as a son what you know what did I feel I I, I was a bit bewildered. Uh, um, Did you feel hurt in any way? No, I actually, I, I tell you why I wasn't hurt. I mean, it, simple working class family, they were just doing their best. Mm. They didn't know what to do. I was registered the last day that you could be legally registered. Right. I worked that out. I think they were just completely confused what to do. They did their best. Um, they didn't tell me because... Um, my mother, now we're talking about my real mother, didn't tell her new husband. Ever. So it was ever, so everything was kept secret. And I fa only found out, because everybody had died by the time I found this out, my grandparents who brought me up, um, my uncles who are now my, uh, my brothers who are now my uncles who didn't know anything, um, my sister had died early, and I only found her out because the place where I was born um, uh, had a girl who was 10 or 11, and girls are more right. interested in these yeah. things than brothers like my brother. And I phoned her up and asked her, and she told me that they were all sworn to secrecy. So and they even kept the secret for half a century. And how old were you when you found out? I was, um, I've been in America, I was just before 60s, just, yes, Right. Late 50s. So a whole lifetime, really, of living whole one life lifetime. and then having to reinvent yourself. And then, well, I had to reinvent all my relatives, for sure. It 
But it wasn't... I was brought up in a loving family. It was a bit old-fashioned. You know, I wouldn't say it was exciting. But it was never difficult. I, I, I mean, I was alone. I think... Um, Did you feel different at all? No. I feel... I don't feel different, but I would like to know who my father is. Mm. Have you tried to find out? Yes, I have, actually. Uh, um, a, I took a DNA test, mm. and I have a, two people who are in the UK that I have um, a sort of first cousin DNA relationship, so it's quite high. And you haven't been to see them? Well, I... I've only came through, I only found out about them through Ancestry DNA. And I did um, write, but they've never replied. So do you think they could be your father or a relation of your father? They're both women, and okay. I think they would probably be the granddaughters of my father. Right. Do What's you think they would have any idea? Or do you think they just... I, I mean, who knows what, you know, I, I was careful what I wrote because I, I think it can be a bit disturbing for people mm. because they may not know anything just mm. like I didn't mm. and it could so I didn't push it did you become closer to your nephews yes, and nieces who I then did. became your siblings yes that, that, that's true so we established a closer relationship yeah and did you feel angry at all with any no I never felt angry mm. I never felt angry uh, I, I, it's back to what I said they were just doing their best. Mm. And what was your relationship like with your sister then growing up? So did she come over and see you a lot? Or? She used to come over every weekend. And I, right. I didn't know, um, I didn't think it was strange because that's what she did. And, and I am sure it was because um, I was there. I mean, she lived in Hounslow, so it was a bit of a trip. Used to bring her children. But until I was about 12, she was there every weekend. And was she quite motherly? I think she worried a bit about me because I was left with her grandparents and it, uh, uh, my grandparents and it was you know perhaps not the most exciting um, sort of um, household maybe and um, when I get you know 17, 18, 19 went to university it was late 1960s, 1968 all of this then she started making clothes for me Really? What kind you know, of clothes? rather exotic clothes. <laughs> you know, like a sort of cape. Bell bottom. <laughs> Bell bottom stuff, a bright green cape. You know, because you know how, what it was like. Well, you probably don't know. But, I mean, you'll have seen pictures of what it was like. And so she definitely was taking interest there. And I think she was pleased that I was somehow breaking out of um, a, perhaps a, a rather conventional... Um, um, upbringing up till then. And do you think she was glad that you weren't adopted in the end? Because actually at that time, quite a lot of children were adopted and that would have been the most obvious course, wouldn't it? And it was so much better probably, wasn't it, to stay within the family? Well, I think nobody can imagine it now because none of this would be... Mm. I mean, it's sort of rechanged. But I think working-class families not infrequently did this. Middle-class families went right. out for adoption. There was a real distinction. I mean, there's been books. Kate Adie wrote a book, for example, uh, about it, because she's in the same situation as me. And there's others. Um, the guitarist. What's the name of the guitarist? Okay. recently saw him on telly. Um, but the... Um, and I'm mentioned in her book, actually, as, as being one of, one of these. But working-class families would keep it in the family. Now, she... 
she, my mother died before I got the Nobel Prize, uh, but I was a professor at Oxford then, so um, she did sort of see that I'd achieved something, anyway. And she never said anything to you at all? There was no, no. hint or...? I used to think she might have told me who my father was in code. And though she but knew... what did she say? Well, you know, I thought maybe she might. And I really racked my brains for it. And um, the, it turned out not to be true. But she, she used to tell me quite a lot about George Melly, who she <laughs> knew. And um, I did begin to wonder, but it turned out not to be correct. must have been a brilliant scientist then. I have no idea. Because you were quite different academically to the rest of your family. Yes, the rest of my family, including my mother, actually left school at 15. My grandfather left school at 12, 11 or 12. I mean, he couldn't really write properly, really, just sort of lists. My uh, mother, grandmother, sorry, my grandmother stayed at school um, a little longer, but they were in country schools. So I used to... This is the irony of it. I used to always think, well, why am I so different? Yeah. And being a geneticist, I used to wonder whether there was something a bit strange about my genetics, and I never thought of this. Do you have a theory about who it is? Or what kind of person your father... Do you have an image of your father in your head? Well, I have wondered... There is another little story <laughs> here. My, um, my real mother gave me a present when I was four or five, and it was a flying helmet... And there's, I don't have it anymore because I didn't realise the significance of it. And there's a picture. I remember it incredibly well. I even remember the smell of it. I asked where it came from when I was six, seven or eight, and she said, well, it was an old boyfriend of mine. So it must have been your father. So I wondered if it's So father. maybe he was a pilot. I thought that too because I'm a pilot. Mm. And I, the moon as well. Yes. Who knows? That's fascinating. So it's a big secret out there somewhere. Mm. The pilot's helmet was my sort of favourite thing. And so there's pictures of me sitting in a sort of little car with, with this thing on. And it is a, a very old leather helmet. I wish I'd had it now. I mean, I don't know what on earth happened to it. There might have been a hair in it that I could exactly. have done the DNA on. But the, uh, uh, um, it, I wondered if it might be an American serviceman. But I was born 1949. This is 1948, so it's a bit late for the Second World War. But it did look like... An RAF helmet, I think. But it an adult's was. helmet. It wasn't a child. It wasn't. It was a an toy. adult's helmet. And adult. how old were you when she gave it to you? Um, I was three or four. I was four in this in the picture I have, and I remember talking to her about it when I was a couple of years older. And what did she say when you talked to her about it? She mentioned that um, it belonged to an old boyfriend, which is the connection. Must have been your father. I th well, one never, you know, I've. I thought I knew the answers sometimes to this, and I haven't, mm. so I can't be completely sure about it. But um, but did you also start flying because you used to love that helmet? No, I mean <laughs> that's uh, I, I went I went so I learned to fly at school when I was sixteen, um, so quite young. Gliders. I'm mainly a glider pilot, actually. I in fact this week, if it wasn't for COVID, I'd have been flying in the Alps. Right. And did she ever give you any name at all then of this boyfriend? No. I have racked my brain 
for this code, you know. Well, the hat, the helmet's the code. Well, the helmet is that is, is, if I had the helmet, I'd have taken it to get it sort of checked more thoroughly. But I can only. But maybe as a child, you picked up that there was some emotional uh, significance, and that must be why you loved it, perhaps. I'm not sure that's true, <laughs> but I did like the smell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the old leather, you know. Yeah, that's the brilliant. I can still remember, I mean, I remember it really well, so may maybe there's something going on beneath my um, consciousness. It's also extraordinary, because most mothers don't give their children mementos from ex-boyfriends, to be honest. No. So I, I, I've, got, I've gone through that logic myself, and um, I, I think, I think there is, it is likely. And this weird thing that I'm a pilot, that's sort of... Mm. I mean, there's not many pilots around in the population. Mm. I mean, it's probably one in a thousand or something. Although that's a strange thing to be genetically inherited well, as well. It, it, yeah. It's a risk taker, probably. Well, I, you know, I, I, don't, I honestly mm. don't know. Fascinating. You know, do you like... There's something about control... Uh, you know, you're controlling... There's things you do that there, there may be a genetic element. Mm. Who knows? <laughs> that's the problem, isn't it? Well, my d I've got one daughter who's a scientist, and, 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 you know, she was a professor at UCL in physics, high-energy physics, CERN, which is... Um, not a place where you find many women. Mm. I mean, it's mainly a male-dominated thing. And my other is, a, is, as I said, a TV producer. They sometimes make fun of me and say we recombine the showman and the scientist. <laughs> and your grandparents weren't who you thought they were either, were they? No, I mean, my whole family is... I, I have a, a remarkable lack of male um, uh, ancestors, really, because prior to this revelation in the president's office in Rockefeller University, where I was to, when I found out that my mother was my sister, um, prior to that, I had... Uh, my parents, who are my grandparents, <laughs> forgive me for this complexity, um, had retired to a village in Norfolk, and... We used to take our young daughters there. And Sarah, who... Uh, I've got two daughters. The physicist is Emily. Sarah is a TV producer. And she had a project at school, which was family trees. By the way, I think it's really dangerous in schools to have family <laughs> trees projects because mm. there's a lot of things that can be revealed by that <laughs> that perhaps shouldn't be revealed or it's um, difficult to reveal. And... Um, so I said, well, why, why don't you come and talk to um, Grandma about family tree? So, you know, my earnest little 10-year-old came with a clipboard with all the questions, you know, and she took um, my mother off into the room next door. I was in my 30s then. And then after about five minutes, they came back, and my mother was white as a sheet, completely white as a sheet. And she said... Um, Sarah's been asking about family trees and so on, and I've, something I've never told you, okay? And she said, you, you, um, you thought that you'd met my father. This is um, not my father, her father. Mm. But actually, he wasn't my father. My mother got pregnant, believe it or not, at 17, was sent, so my mother said, to the poorhouse. I'm not sure poorhouses existed. This was Edwardian times, mm. but, I mean, it's something perfect. equivalent. Gosh. And she gave birth to um, my mother, who was brought up by her grandmother. No. 
completely the same. And she said, and I don't know um, who my father is. Okay, so I thought, this is extraordinary then. She said, and it's the same for your father as well. Oh, my goodness. And my father, who was my grandfather, was also illegitimate. And his mother, who I did know and looked after me, and I thought was my grandmother, but was actually my (laughs) great-grandmother. I hope you're following all of this. Um, She looked after me, and she lost her hearing and voice in the Spanish flu of 1919. And she got pregnant, um, much older, and looked after my father, grandfather, for eight years as a single parent. She got them married, um, but that wasn't my grandfather either, or it would have been my great-grandfather, but they were neither. I have no idea who my great-grandfathers are, sure. But also, she didn't think in that conversation to tell you that actually she wasn't your mother. I think she was white and terrified that that would be revealed. Yeah. Uh, or that you might ask the question. Yes. And there's she was Baptist. So if I'd asked the question, would she have had to answer? Mm. You know? There's just so many secrets and lies. Aren't secrets and lies. And you know the film, uh, mm. Secrets and Lies. And so she, I mean, my, uh, um, my grandparents were in service in the big house. And I think that's where illegitimate children often went and so they met oh, in the uh, servants in the big house in Norfolk. I never thought of this. Do you think it's changed your view of the nature-nurture debate that in some ways actually your well, genes are stronger than you thought or not? Well I, I have thought a bit about this and I, I'm sure genes matter because I'm a geneticist and I mean that's what <laughs> I study. But on the whole, I think there's a sort of 50-50 on average about genes and environment. Does it change your sense of your own identity? Has it changed how you feel about yourself, finding out the truth? I hate to disappoint because, you know, I ought to feel sort of devastated and under psychoanalysis. But the truth is I'm not. It didn't. I mean, actually, in, in, when I told my doctor in New York, I mean, which is full of psychoanalysis, he said, I, I hope you're seeing something. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it didn't. It's, it really hasn't bothered me very much. And it's, I think, because I had a perfectly happy childhood. Mm. Slightly dull, but perfectly happy. What do they think now, your daughters? Well, I told them, I remember phoning them up from New York. They were in Chicago, actually, because my uh, physicist daughter was working in university then in Chicago. And they were rollerblading um, down the lake. And I phoned them up and said, uh, just sit down <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> and... Um, they just took it in their stride. Mm. Has it changed the way you feel about your children? I, I, sorry to sound so boring. I don't think so. Yeah. No. It, think it, it, it just how it was. And apart from, not, apart from wanting to know who my father is, I would like to know yeah. that. There is, there is nothing that But do you feel, me. actually, that you're a bit boring in a way, that you haven't had some extraordinary secret yourself, that you've... You, know, you have a very nuclear family and two daughters, and well, there aren't any more secrets. Isn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you haven't got any more secrets to pass down, really, now. No, sorry. No, <laughs> this is enough for me, by the way. <laughs> and you that must have known that difficult. your mother loved you very much because she was around so much, wasn't she? She was around. I mean, it must have been... Uh, you, you ask how I've been affected. It must have been devastating for her. I mean, just to, have, to leave me. Mm. You know, and if this had been ten years later... I don't think any of it would have happened. Mm. Certainly, f- fifteen by the sixties, it wouldn't have happened. Is, was her husband still alive when you found out? Were you able to speak no, to him they about were, it? They, no, neither of them were alive. Mm. No. 
Do you think many people in the community knew, apart from the one cousin? Was it? Um, uh, the cousin knew, and um, the, the person I thought was my uncle then, but no, isn't. It's actually my half-great-uncle, but... Um, he um, apparently, when I, I, I did my PhD in Norwich, which is where I was born, it's the University of East Anglia, and um, there was apparently, and this is what my cousin told me, there was a family debate as to whether I should be told. And apparently he, um, who was a farm labourer actually, thought I should be told. But nobody else did. And is there anything you had to change, like like uh, when you um, write anything or your biogs or anything? You had to completely alter those, or even your CV now. Well, it's a joke, isn't it? You asked about passports, so I have two passports. In fact, I have two British passports because when I was in New York, I was travelling a lot, and I'd have a visa and send the passport off. I have one set of parents for one passport and another set of parents. <laughs> oh for my the goodness! Other one. And I remember going. Did you alternate to, them? <laughs> well, it was just. No, when I got one, I had uh, my grandparents were my parents, mm. and then when it, when I went for the next one, I knew that they weren't. So I went to the. So how did you explain that to the passport? Well, I went to the passport office and I said, "Look, this is what happened," and so I've now got two. And the, <laughs> the lady, <laughs> she was great, really. She, she said, "I don't think we really need to know that. Just, just <laughs> leave it alone. No deal, notice." Which is really the best thing for me, isn't it? In a way. It, it really yeah. is. So I have these two passports, which are, you know, if the CIA were onto me or MI6 or something, I mean, they'd probably <laughs> think I was trouble. a spy or something. So, how are you going to find your father? Or what do you think? Is there anything well, else? Well, I thought do? DNA would reveal it, mm. and I thought I would get some feedback, and I didn't and I don't like to push it because as I said not everybody wants to know um, I could take another DNA test um, my DNA has been sequenced actually completely and in fact um, the Queen sequenced me now I, that's going to sound completely ludicrous but the Queen opened this building and of course I showed her around and we got um, we had to sort of give her something exciting to do yeah. so I, um, I said well she could sequence a genome I thought about sequencing her um, corgis, you know, yeah. and I, but I thought that would be a bit invasive. And she didn't want to be done. Well, I thought that would, and I'd end up in the tower if I tried yes. to do that, so I didn't suggest that. And in the end, I volunteered my own um, DNA, and she pressed the button, and she said, I hope you don't find out anything you don't want oh, to know. <laughs> When was this? Was this before this was, you found? No, I knew after. I knew. I knew my Did you own, tell her? Uh, no, I didn't <laughs> tell her. Then. I didn't. Seven or eight, walking to school and looking at nature and looking at the changes in the world. Could you have thought that you might have become a famous scientist? Did you ever have that dream? Well, you know, I uh, when I was at grammar school, um, I um, I don't know if you've heard of a, 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 a famous Nobel laureate chemist called Linus Pauling. Hmm. He also got the Peace Prize, so he's one of the few people who got two Nobel prizes. He got the Peace Prize for keeping contact with Soviet um, Russia, the Soviet Union. And um, I remember my friend, I was called Linus because Linus Pauling and I looked a bit like him. And he was convinced I'd win, my friend would win a Nobel Prize. Absolutely convinced. Really? That's amazing. That's fascinating. And yet I couldn't get into university. It was just... Bizarre. And do you think you'd have done anything differently if you'd known who your real mother was at the start of your life? 
it would have probably been tougher for me had I learnt this when I was 12 or even 20. Yeah. Maybe not so much at 20. It wasn't tough in my 50s, for sure. Mm. Or even, actually, if you'd had to go with your mother to a new family with a new husband, might have been quite Yeah, I mean, it would have been strange, wouldn't it? And do you think, does it make you sort of even more determined to change the world or find things out, even now? I've always been determined to find things out mm. before I knew that, so I don't think that has impacted. And never believe it. everything you see on the surface. Well, that's for sure, and I learnt that, of course, from doing science, that you know, you're constantly misled by nature, so you have to be mm. wrestle with nature, wrestle with the real world. Do you think that there is any sense in which some kind of adversity in childhood can be an advantage? I think there can be. I mean, not always in a good way in the sense of something you feel good about it. I mean, um, I think struggling a bit was good. Failing when I was young was quite important. That, that sounds strange. The fact I couldn't get O-level French, the fact I couldn't get to the university, the fact that I wasn't always good at exams. You know, every student who comes to me with PhD is all alpha plus, plus, plus all their life. They come and start a PhD, and within a month they've failed everything they do, and it's completely devastating for them, or can be very difficult. Whereas I failed quite a lot, and I learnt just to deal with it. I mean, you, failure is part of success. If and actually, fail. with the French, you literally never got it, did you? So no, I didn't you ever. Have to move on. <laughs> I didn't ever get it. It's brilliant. Paul Nurse, thank you very much for talking to us. It's a pleasure to talk thank to you. Thank you. Thank you. Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmond. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, ACAS, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information